Great job. You got it. We nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> we nailed it. Uh, more gruesome than my bloody knees. I have a question. Has, has anyone heard of the trolley problem? Yes. Okay. Oh my gosh, I hate that so much. It's a gruesome, it's a gruesome thought, but here it is. Uh, if there were a trolley headed down, does everybody know what a trolley is? No. Mm -hmm. it's, like it's, like a, it's like a little train just for a one train car. Okay, you know what a trolley is. It's the thing that runs on the wire, right? In San Francisco? Yes. Yeah. Or in other cities, too. It's from Dayton Tires neighborhood, like Waco. Mr. Rogers. If a trolley is on, a tr on tracks, yeah. and there is one person tied up on those tracks, and the trolley's, or five, excuse me, I've already ruined it. There are five people on, those, on the tracks that this, folly, that this trolley's going to run over. You're standing by the tracks, and you have the lever that controls which tracks the trolley goes down. If you pull the lever, the trolley goes down another track where there is just one person tied up on the tracks. If you do nothing, you do nothing at all, the trolley will go and run over those five people, innocent people. If you pull the lever, the trolley will run over one person. But it will be your fault. What would you do? Think about it for a second, and we're just going to go around really quick, and you're going to vote whether or not you would pull the lever. I guess we could do it by show of hands. Uh, raise your hand if you would pull the lever. Oh, some hesitant hand raise. I would pray that God never pulled me in that <laughs> That would be a good prayer. Uh, Jonah, did you not raise your hand? Mm -hmm. Why not? They're all going to die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Jonah runs an experiment and it fails miserably. <laughs> and several people die. <laughs> I would stop the trolley car with my bare hands. Uh, a lot of people... Do you, have, do, you guys, uh, do you guys have questions? Yes, I have a question. You have a question. Is it a serious question? Yes, it is. Go ahead. Does the person on the track that you might switch it to have a criminal record? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know anything about any of the people. This is a hyper... How do you know the, people, the five people are innocent? You don't. Well, because uh, I told you. Uh, it's a hypothetical problem that in, in college class, people like to think about this uh, in ethics classes. About if you act to save someone but injure someone else, do, do the benefits outweigh the negatives? Are you guilty in some way in one situation? Are you not in another? Uh, but it gets us thinking about something. Where do you get your idea of right and wrong? Where do you get your idea of right and wrong? So, I have a question for you. I'd like to hear like two or three answers. Where do you get your idea of right and wrong? Kaylee? Maybe your parents. Maybe your parents. I think that's a good answer. You're trained from youth to think in certain ways and they tell you what's right and what's wrong. Do this, don't do that. That's a good thing, that's a bad thing. It might influence you in other ways, in politics, uh, in how to use money. George, where do you get your idea of right and wrong? Um, like experiences? Yeah, you might learn from experiences. I've done this before. 
didn't work out well. Maybe I say that's wrong. Something like that. Maybe. Maybe. How about either yourself or others? Where might other people get their idea of right and wrong? government, laws. The law tells me this is wrong, so I'm not going to do it, or vice versa. Sienna? I think a lot of people, so even some people would think that, like, if they follow a certain way as a kid, but then sometimes, but then, like, say their childhood becomes twisted, their, their perception, I think that's the right word, of right and wrong has changed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, and when you start to follow the world, it gets confusing because you don't know what is right and what is wrong. So, I don't know. Yeah, so it could change with a major event that happens in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it used to be a lot of people used to go to war. So a lot of young men in World War II, Vietnam era, most young men would go off to war. Uh, and they would probably come back with very different ideas of what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Janae. Their philosophy class. Their philosophy class. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, philosophy books, yeah. professors, people in history might influence your idea of right and wrong. Ben? Uh, your own conscience. Your own conscience? What do you mean by that? Uh, well, some people might define conscience differently, but like, I feel like your own heart would say, huh, I want to do this, or this is right, this is wrong. But I don't know, I'd like to see like in a, in a uh, test tube facility where no societal impacts, I feel like society impacts our conscience, right? Mm -hmm. But I want to know, in a test tube environment. Okay, so, you're, you really so in the nature versus nurture argument, yeah. we've all kind of come up with nature answers. Outside forces influence our idea of right and wrong. Ben, you're saying that even inside of us is an innate idea of right and wrong in our conscience. Yeah, like you feel something. <laughs> yeah, you, you feel guilty when something happens. Yeah. I agree. George, last one. Final. And you ended on a good one. Yeah. Yes, the Bible. The Bible. I'm surprised it took that long to get there. But the Bible is a way we can get right and wrong. We all have a standard of right and wrong that we live by. We all think some actions are good, some are bad, some are okay, some make you mad when you see other people do them. If someone came up to you and tried to steal something, for instance, what would you do? You'd probably stop them. You say, no, no. <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. We all have a standard of right and wrong. But here's a question to think about on your own while we're sitting here. Do you live up to your own standards of right and wrong? We all have a standard of right and wrong that we live by, that we think is correct. Do you live up to your own standard of right and wrong? So, for instance, you might think it's wrong to lie. Do you ever lie? You might think it's wrong to try and control someone else. None of us like to be controlled by others. But do you try and control others into getting what you want when it serves you? None of us ever live perfectly up to the standards that we set for ourselves even as right and wrong. And what's the result of that? I think there are a couple results of not living up to our own standards of right and wrong. We can have a guilty conscience. I think it tends to make us aimless. Uh, it can breed pride. And it makes us search for acceptance. 
from others. So I'm going to go through each one of those very briefly. It makes us have guilty consciences like Ben talked about. Guilt is no fun to walk around with. And that's kind of an understatement. Guilt, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, can be absolutely crushing sometimes. It can even have physical manifestations, effects on our bodies. It can keep us up at night. It can make you on edge and kind of jittery all the time. It's a burden to walk around life with a guilty conscience. Second, it can make us aimless. Trying to live up to your own standard of right and wrong can make you aimless. It's good to know what you'll be doing a few years from now, what school you'll be going to, what job you'll be doing. It's really hard to live with uncertainty. So if you don't know what next year will bring, what you're doing tomorrow, or to an extreme example, imagine not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Uh, that makes life hard. And so that's why we're all grateful for consistency. It's nice to be able to go home to your house with your parents at the end of the day tonight because you have consistency there. You know what bed you're going to sleep in. You know your mom's going to be. You know what meal's going to come. But if you're trying to come up with your own set of morals, if you're trying to figure out your own set of right and wrong, you will live in perpetual uncertainty. Right now you think this way. What if you change your mind? Will that mean you have to change what college you're going to, what career you're pursuing? Let's say you've been married for 10 years and you have a change in morals. Does that mean you can leave the person you're married to? We weren't meant to live with that kind of uncertainty that comes from trying to set our own standard of right and wrong. Trying to live up to your own standards will also make you proud. You think you have everything figured out, and when other people don't live up to the, whatever standard you've set, you think you're better than that person. You'll probably get upset with them. It'll also, lastly, so it makes you guilty, it makes you aimless, uh, it makes you proud. It'll also make you search for acceptance. And it usually makes you search for acceptance in the wrong places. Think about it. If you aren't sure if what you do on a day-to-day basis is right and wrong, you'll look for people who will tell you whether you're right and wrong. And usually you'll gravitate towards people who tell you what you want to hear. You might find a crowd or a movement that accepts you. You might find a boyfriend or girlfriend who makes you feel valued and loved. But the problem is, when sinful people look for acceptance in other sinful people, we're usually led astray. So what we need is objective, true, certain standard of right and wrong. And we have one. George said it. God's given us an objective standard of right and wrong in his word. Tonight, we're going to be looking at God revealing the law to Israel in Exodus. We've been walking through the whole Bible, seeing how the whole thing is one story about God's glory. Bless you, Scott. One story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. One story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. We've made it all the way to the second book of the Bible. We started, we saw that God created everything. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit has eternally existed that way. Created all things that exist. We saw how he made Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. The fall occurred. Sin entered the world. And God promised redemption to them through Christ. 
God then makes promises to Abraham that he will overcome sin and death through his offspring and he'll give him the promised land. We saw when we talked about Abraham that God's faithful to all of his promises and all of his promises are realized in Christ. Uh, last time we went through Exodus, the first half of Exodus, we saw God rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. And we talked about how that is a picture of God delivering his people from slavery to sin and death in Christ. That picture of deliverance out of Egypt is a picture of him delivering his church out of the slavery to sin and death. This week, after God's done that, he's brought his people out of Egypt. He's rescued his people. Uh, he gives them the law. It's about the first thing he does after he rescues his people and brings them out. And here's the main idea tonight. If you're going to take notes, if you're going to write things down, this is the main idea. You need to know that God requires something from you that you cannot do. You need to know that God requires something from you that you cannot do. God's requirement is the law. It's the moral law, the Ten Commandments. This is God's standard of right and wrong. It's part of the covenant that God makes with the people of Israel. As we said, we, he saves them out of Egypt and promises to be their God if they obey these commandments. If they obey these commandments. Exodus 19, where we left off, says this. This is God talking to Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Did you notice that big old if at the beginning of that scene? If. If you keep the commandments, I will you will be my treasured people, God says. So what are the Ten Commandments he then gives? Everyone, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus. Genesis is right after Exodus. Does anybody else need a Bible? Yes. Sienna, do you need one? Do you want to borrow one? Exodus chapter 20. The big number is 20. Little verse number 1. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Augie. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These Ten Commandments come from God, and they tell us a lot about God, too. What's something, raise your hand, what's something that we learn about God from these commandments? George. It says in the, in the passage, I am a, he says, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God, so God is jealous. Yes. That means he won't tolerate what? Probably I'd, bad behavior that is idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. If, you're, if, if a husband is a jealous husband in a good sense, uh, he won't tolerate his wife just hanging out with a bunch of, uh, of guys, of unmarried guys, for instance. That's one way you could understand jealousy in a good way that God means it there. What's something else we learn about God? Yeah, that's how he starts it. He starts the Ten Commandments. He precedes it by reminding them what he's done. So that's a really good observation. Augie, did you have something? No, I just have a question. How is it Ten Commandments if it happens during 17 verses? Uh, it's not verse by verse. It's um, the orig Originally, the Bible didn't have any verses. And so it's how traditionally we have... Um, Organize these into ten distinct commandments. A what? Uh, you'd have to ask. Oh man, I forget the guy's name that did all the verses. Augie, when I organize the Bible, I'll do it that way. <laughs> Janae. Uh, Yeah, he shows loving kindness to those who keep his commandments. Uh, some others, look at verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. That teaches us something about God. He is faithful. We don't commit adultery because he is faithful to his people. Look at verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God is true. There's no falsehood in him. So he commands us to reflect that by not lying. So God's law helps us to know God himself. It helps us to know who he is. His law matches up with his nature. His law matches up with his nature. These aren't random laws that he just kind of picked. These are things that reflect his very own nature. God's law also tells all of us, not just Israel, how he expects us as his creatures to live. We don't have to go searching, trying to come up with morality 
for ourselves that fits with whatever we like, whatever desires we have. Did you have a question, Ben? Yeah, more um, comment. Go ahead. Be that, uh, that we don't have. Yeah, like how you said, I was going to jump in and say that mm-hmm. God does not, men does not define, or man does not define what is right and wrong. Therefore, when we define what is right and wrong in our own hearts, that's that's just sin, right? Because we have the law. We have what's right and wrong. Yeah, right and wrong exists because of God. Because God, God exists. Uh, we don't get to make up right and wrong on our own. We actually submit to what God has revealed is right and wrong. Specifically, we see a summary of that. Not everything that's right and wrong is in the Ten Commandments, but a good and faithful summary of that is in the Ten Commandments. Jeanette. Um, so I read this book for summary and stuff, and it was a part. It was like a passage from one of C.S. Lewis's books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, they're not arbitrary rules that he kind of came up with and was like, uh, as a test of obedience, I want my people not to lie. Like, we'll just throw that in. Yeah, nothing's just thrown in there. Well, let's go through each commandment and see what God requires of us. Look at the first commandment in verse 3. Look at the first commandment in verse 3. You shall know, or verse, starting in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No one can be above God in your life. He and he alone is to be supreme in your life. This commandment tells us we have to worship him above all else. We listen to him above all competing voices, even our own, because we can become our own false and rival gods. If our morality starts to challenge God's morality, We've become our own God, our own lawgiver. Look at the second commandment. Don't worship idols. Have you ever heard anyone say, so whether you're worshiping a carved image or something else, have you ever heard anyone say, I like to think of God like this? Maybe. Oh, on TV. Yeah. I like to think of God this way. There's a good chance they're breaking the second commandment. They're making an idol in their own mind. They don't have to carve it out of wood or rock to create an idol and worship that image. Yeah? How is number two different from one? How is number two different from one? Uh, They're very related. Mm -hmm. In fact, some traditions say that they're one commandment themselves. I think uh, verse three deals more with uh, the worship, the the oneness of God, reveals the oneness of God. It says we're to worship him and him alone. the second commandment is more with specifically visible depictions of that. So like later on, Creations. yeah, later on, Israel makes a golden calf, a famous story about the golden calf. They say that this is the Jehovah who brought you, this is Yahweh who brought you out. So I think that would be a second, a violation of the second commandment because it's distorting who God is rather than saying, I worship Allah. Like a yeah. So maybe that's the case. I would look into that more, and I don't know if I just gave you a sufficient answer. So I think that's a really good question. Thank you.
looking into the specific differences. Third commandment uh, is to not blaspheme the name of the Lord your God. So what this is getting at is saying don't claim the name of God and then live another way. Don't distort what his name means, who he is. Uh, in a very simple sense, it could be saying, don't say OMG. Don't toss his name around uh, carelessly. Next commandment, look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the fourth commandment. Good Christians disagree about how we should interpret this commandment, what is required of us. But at least we can say this. This is what God requires of us in the fourth commandment. One day a week, Saturday to Israel, Sunday to the church today, the day that Jesus rose. One day a week is to look different from the rest of the week. God gave it to us to rest from work and to gather as a church to worship him. That's the very least we can say about what God requires of us in this commandment. The fifth commandment, moving on, verse 12. So those four commandments are about vertical worship of God. The rest of the commandments are about horizontal worship. They don't have nothing to do with God. It tells us a lot about what we think about God, how we treat other people. How we treat other people starts with honoring our parents. Every time we disobey our parents, we dishonor them. We tell God, I don't like the authority that you've put in my life. Actually, I don't like your authority for doing that. And so breaking the first commandment. <laughs> yes. They're very linked. James says, if you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. It's like a mirror. Sixth commandment. This shows us how much God values and how much we should value life. God is. He has life in himself. We shouldn't take life away from others. The seventh commandment shows us the value of love and faithfulness uh, to your spouse. It also teaches us that God takes sexual sin very seriously. He cares about what you do with your bodies. The Eighth Commandment. Have you ever taken anything that God's given something else hasn't given to you? Have you taken something from someone else? Ninth Commandment. God is truth, so he demands truthfulness, like we already said. You cannot lie. The Tenth Commandment. Don't wish something you didn't have, something someone else had, was yours. Every time you get jealous of someone else, using jealous in a bad sense, every time you get jealous of someone else, jealous of their popularity, their car, their clothes, you're really actually upset with God. God, you haven't given me enough. You aren't fair. You don't know what you're doing in my life. You haven't blessed me like you've blessed that other person. Not coveting. That's what coveting is. So what are we to do when we're confronted with that standard, with God's standard of right and wrong? What, should, what are we to do? Well, let's see what Israel does. What does Israel do? They agree to try and keep them. They hear that. And if you flip over really quick to chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, the God, words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we 
will do. Sounds like a good deal. We do this, you bless us. I like it. By the way, that sounds a lot like Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't it? Do this, bless you with life. Don't do this, death. But as one pastor says, that I've heard, Israel should not have responded this way. They should have said, no, there must be some other way. We, there's no way we can do this. There has to be another way, please. If we're unable to even meet our own standards, thinking of what we talked about earlier, if we're unable to meet our own standards of right and wrong, there's no way that we can meet God's perfect standard of right and wrong. The consequence of not meeting God's standard of right and wrong is hell. It's eternal punishment for breaking God's holy law. These aren't silly rules like we said before. These are laws that reveal God's nature, what he expects of us. They're actually laws that reveal our heart. If we look to the law, if we just look at the law, those Ten Commandments, we are hopeless. Listen to famous Puritan John Bunyan in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, second best-selling book of all time. It's a big allegory for the Christian life. Listen to Bunyan's description of the law. It's a conversation between two men named, one's named Faithful and one's named Christian. Faithful. Now when I had gone about halfway up, just talking about going up this hill, this mountain, when I had gone about halfway up, I looked behind me and saw one coming after me as swift as the wind. He overtook me just about the place where the arbor stands. Christian. That was the same place where I sat down to rest. And being overcome with sleep, I lost my scroll. Faithful. But, good brother, hear me out. As soon as the man overtook me, he gave me a blow and knocked me down, nearly killing me. When I somewhat revived, I asked him why he abused me so. He replied, because of your secret inclining to Adam the first. You're like Adam. With that, he struck me another deadly blow on my chest and beat me down backward. So I lay at, at his feet as dead. When I recovered again, I cried to him for mercy. But he said, I do not know how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. No doubt he would have made an end of me. But that one came by and commanded him to refrain. Who was it that made him stop? Christian says, faithful. I did not know him at first, but as he went by, I noticed the holes in his hands and in his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord, so I continued up the hill. Christian, that man who overtook you was Moses. He spares none. Neither does he know how to show mercy to those who transgress his law. We are left hopeless when we just look at the law. Because we break the law. Our sin is revealed when we look at the law. If you're taking notes, write that down. The law reveals our sin. The law reveals our sin. As we walk through that list, I hope something became pretty clear. I hope we saw that none of our lives look exactly like that perfect moral standard. Who can read all of those laws, all that list, and check all the boxes, say, yep, I've never lied. I've never stolen. Never wanted anything that wasn't mine. I've always woken up on Sunday morning with a perfect heart, full of gratitude, ready to worship God. None of us can say that. 
because the Bible's clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because we're children of Adam and Eve, we live lives that rebel against God's standard. So these laws, these commandments show our sin. And that's one of God's major reasons he so clearly gave these rules, was to show our sin. But it also points us away from ourselves, away from our sin, and away from the law itself. Who was the man with holes in his hands that Bunyan was describing? Jesus. Bible study answer, there it is. Jesus. The law points out our sin, but it also points us to Jesus. Paul calls the law in Galatians a tutor or a schoolmaster that points us to Christ. If perfect obedience to the law is the only way to live in a right relationship with God, and if we've failed to perfectly obey that law, which we all have, we need help. We need someone who's kept the law perfectly. We need God's grace. We need Christ. We need Christ because God is full is full of mercy, but he's perfectly just. He does not let sin go. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. Listen to how God, as he's revealing himself to Moses, describes himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So how can this be? How can God, in one sentence to Moses, say he is perfectly just and merciful? The answer is the cross. On the cross, God's justice and his mercy meet. On the cross, the demands of the law, which is death, God's full wrath, are poured out on Christ. On the cross, the only sinless man, the only one who ever kept these Ten Commandments, stood in the place of guilty sinners and said, I will take the punishment they deserve. God poured out his wrath on Christ and put him to death. But three days later, Christ rose from the dead. The curse of death couldn't overcome the God-man. And so all who repent, every single person who turns from their sin, turns from your self-righteousness, and trusts in Christ alone for your righteousness, will be saved. The law brings death, but faith in Christ brings up life. If we want to be restored to a right relationship with God, if we want to know the peace that comes along with that righteousness, if we want eternal life, we need Christ. The beginning of the Gospel of John. John says this. And the word, when he says the word, he's talking about Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and dwells among us. And he gives grace to all who trust in him. The rest of the Exodus, after this chapter, after God gives the law in a few chapters, uh, describes how God dwells with his people in a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling place. It's the same word that John uses in John 1 there. It actually says, Jesus tabernacled. The word tabernacled set up his tent among us. He dwelt among us. The way we have access to God, to his presence, is through Christ alone. We can have fellowship with God through Christ because in him we have mercy and redemption from sin, the sin that was exposed by the law. One last thing I want to mention as we're running very low on time. We said earlier that the law is good. We said earlier that the law is good. It's good. It tells us about God. It points us to Christ. It points out our sin. But the last thing we have to say about the law is that it teaches us to live the way Jesus lived. So after we trust in Christ, we don't throw out the law. We don't put it behind us and say, I don't have to live like that anymore. I'm not judged by the law anymore. I'm in Christ. It's true. For all who are in Christ, your righteousness is not based on your own works of the law. But it does teach us how to live the way Jesus lived. Christians should now keep the law not because it saves them, but because it shows us how to live a life that pleases God. So if you look back at the Ten Commandments, you'll see what God expects. You can look through them on your own later, maybe, and try and think. Why should a Christian keep this commandment? For instance, do not covet. Why should a Christian not covet? Why not? I have Christ. I have forgiveness. I have fellowship. What else do I need? What else is there if God's given me this great prize? Will he withhold something lesser from me that would be for my good? No. Honor the Sabbath. I no longer have to go to this ceremony every week. I get to go worship the God who saved me with a bunch of others who are just as sinful, who have received just as much mercy. The gospel is not that we need to keep the law to be right with God. The gospel is that guilty sinners who have broken God's law are forgiven and rescued from their sin in Christ and now love God and his good law. So don't be tossed around by society's definition of right and wrong. Don't try and come up with one on your own. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a good person by lowering the standard of right and wrong. And don't live the rest of your life with a guilty conscience. Look to God. He's the great lawgiver. Look to Christ, who fulfilled the law for us. And have confidence in what's right. More importantly, have confidence in who is right. God. Trust Him alone, not in your own goodness. And if you do that, you trust in God, I promise you, because God promises you, that you'll find him to be a very good Savior. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the truth that you've revealed in your word. Lord, I pray that all of us here would consider our own lives and our own hearts by your standard that we would compare ourselves to your holy standard, not one that we've come up with, 
I pray that would humble us. Lord, I pray that that would drive us in repentance and faith to Christ. And I pray that from him we would find shelter from the wrath that we deserve. And from him we would find grace and love from you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have about 10, 15 minutes. Okay, let's go. Well, do we want to break up into guys and girls? Or do, we, or do we want to just stay here and answer the questions together? Let's quick quick vote. Stay here. Split into guys and girls. We're splitting into guys and girls. Okay, let's go.